Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Better Words. We're here this week with another book club. Yay. Um, And this was based on my um, accidental find at the library a few weeks ago. Um, And when I mentioned it to Caitlin, she said, that sounds like a really cool book. Um, And because it's HarperCollins, (laughs) she was able to get a copy through work and um, we decided to read it together and chat about it. Um, So this is the first time we're really comparing notes. It's it's very exciting. But also, just before we jump into this, how's your week been? Have you been good? You all good, Caitlin? Yep, I'm all good. <laughs> Although I am wearing a jumper and it's the 9th of November, so. That's weird. Yeah, that's weird for that's Australia. That's weird for Australia. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wish it was, you know, a bit sunnier. We're almost at summer. I wish we were there. Not that I'm like begging for 40 degrees or anything, but like 30 would be nice. (laughs) And everyone in the UK is like dying at the thought of 30 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We had a really weird day or actually we had a really weird weekend here because it was foggy all day. It literally just looked like the time had not changed at all. It was just really thick fog all day. It was so weird. It was really strange. So we ended up going out for a walk. Isn't it? Yeah, it was so bizarre. So we went out for a walk and there's a golf course right like right near our house. Um, but it runs over like there's a there's a laneway that runs in the middle, like like a car laneway. Yeah. Um, But then it's also got all these little walking laneways across the whole thing. And honestly, when you're walking down those, you would think that you're in the middle of like the woods. It's amazing, especially when it's like really dark and foggy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we had like quite a fun little walk. It was great. Um, And the best thing about that is at the moment that main road is closed I don't really understand why I think they were doing work, but they don't seem to be. Anyway, the road's closed, so you can walk up the middle of the road, get some nice, pretty autumn pictures. Um, so that that was quite nice. But other than that, I literally spent my whole weekend reading, 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 which was great. Yeah, I know. Really good to get a lot of reading in, isn't it? Let's get into this week's book club. So, Michelle, since you've got your hard copy right in front of you, how about you tell us all what book we're doing this week. Okay, so this book caught my eye because it is like a pinky red cover and it's called Cow Girl. And I was like, that looks fun. (laughs) Yeah, and it has a girl in like a cow onesie on the cover, which is very fun. Yeah, it's a very striking cover. Um, So let me give you the blurb. Basically, Billy is from South Yorkshire. I'm going to get into that a little bit later. She escapes her farm life for university, becomes a amazing scientist 
and um, is living in London trying to get a PhD for her research into um, eclampsia research because that's what killed her mother. And the only reason I know about eclampsia at all is because I've watched Downton Abbey and that's um, (laughs) famously what happens to Sybil. Still the most devastating episode of television ever. Anyway, basically she is living her amazing London life, but then her dad gets seriously ill. And so she goes back up to the farm and is like there for her dad, obviously, but is very conflicted because the farm and the farming community is very homophobic because that's the other thing I haven't mentioned as well. She is gay, so she has to leave her lovely girlfriend, go back up there, face this homophobia, and also just face the place that she had decided that she was never going to live again and all the stuff that comes with it. So her dad is a dairy farmer, which requires obviously getting up very early to milk the cows. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's lots of lots of fun and shenanigans. And actually, this book um, won a Comedy Women in Print Prize in 2009 as an unpublished, 2019, sorry, as an unpublished manuscript. So as you can imagine, quite funny, quite enjoyable read. Caitlin, what did you think? Oh, I should say as well, it is by Kirsty Eyre. I hope I'm saying that last name right. Yeah. It is a very funny, very enjoyable read. There are lots of shenanigans and, like, funny little scenarios, often involving the cows. There's lots of cow jokes and cow puns throughout the whole book, which is just so fun. Did you feel, like, a little bit reminded of home? with all the talk of cows, even though Rockhampton is not known for dairy cows, but is the beef capital of Australia. Well, a little bit like, well, but remember, okay, I get a double whammy of home in this because I was reminded of that in Rockhampton. But actually, so when I read obviously the back of this, I was like, oh, cool. Yorkshire, that's close to us. That's fun. But actually, when I started reading it, Billy is from a little place a little village near Baslow, which is in the Peak District, which is quite near us. And I was like, that's very cool. And in fact, Chesterfield makes several appearances in the novel. Her dad ends up being taken to Chesterfield Hospital, which coincidentally is in front of the golf course. So we stumbled upon the back. We were like walking through the golf course yesterday. It's all foggy. And then Jack was like, what are all those lights over there? And we looked it up on the map and that was the back of the hospital. Oh, that's so So, Yeah, I know. So, And also she catches the train to London from Chesterfield. um, And then there's a couple of times when her friends are coming up from London and she says, oh, they should be between Chesterfield and Sheffield now. Um, She goes into Sheffield a lot, which is our closest like big city. So yeah, I had like a double whammy of home. She mentions, she mentions coming into Chesterfield for a McDonald's and then like walking around the town. And I was like, yes. (laughs) I know which McDonald's you mean. Yeah, that <laughs> um, must have been so, yeah, so fun. So cool. It was so cool because then they talk about like Bakewell and the bus that we get to Bakewell sometimes is the bus company is Huey's of Baslow. So, yeah, I was like, there's a reason that Baslow makes like that makes sense. I know that name and that was why. Um, so, yeah, that's 
that's like a fun little thing. Um, but you know what? I did think when we were when I was reading it, and one of the main things in this, and I think it's brilliant that this is explored in such a like commercial book, is the fact that dairy farmers are paid an absolute pittance for the milk that we all rely on. Um, well, I say I say we. I know a lot of people don't drink cow's milk anymore. Um, especially in our like generation, but yeah. Jack and I still go through a lot of milk. Me too. Um, a lot of people still yeah, drink cow's gonna, milk. And I was going to say to you, like, do you drink? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, but basically, they get paid an absolute pittance, and this will translate really well to an Australian audience as well, because the issues that they're talking about about dairy farmers in this book. Um, are exactly the same things that our dairy farmers have been dealing with in Australia. Like um, you might remember like a few years ago, the whole like dollar a litre for milk saga, milk wars between Coles and Woolworths. It's the same sort of thing here. Um, And basically what that means is that the people who sell the milk to the supermarkets can charge whatever they want essentially to the farmers. So what Billy also discovers when she goes back is that, the farm is running not just at a loss but at a massive loss. It's like yeah. a gigantic hole that they can't get out of. And, like, all the other local farmers are starting to go broke as well and people are leaving and they really need to pull together as a community to really um, change that and get paid more and get, you know, the general public aware of this issue so that they know that they should be paying more for their milk um, and buying, like, the special milk for farmers brands and stuff like that which will also be familiar to Australians because we have similar things here it kind of also applies to lots of industries like you know there are lots of things that we know we could be buying different brands to support you know farmers and agricultural communities um and you know support through and particularly in Australia as well like like weather disasters and things like that that we have here that contribute to some of those issues but it was really nice to read about it and how the community all came together to um in the book they end up doing a bit of a march and they get all of the cows like through the town square which just sounded so funny (laughs) yeah and in Sheffield which I can just imagine but there's this wonderful bit where um I mean it's really horrible because this rude guy like okay to be fair the cows are everywhere in the city yeah um and a few have gone loose I think (laughs) yeah yeah I mean there have been a a few incidents but basically this very rude man throws a cup of tea in Billy's face um and is like how dare you be here blah 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 and this guy comes up and he's like did you have milk in that? Because you should be supporting us. And I was like, yes. Yes, I know. It was like, yes, well done. I know. It was very good. In saying this, we do absolutely acknowledge that dairy farming, any type of farming is not good for the environment. Um, But I think as well, like it's it's very hard when you grow up somewhere like Rockhampton. Um, Both of my parents came off farms it's very hard to take the hardline view that farming is bad <laughs> because it's just the world that we've grown up in. And I think both of both of us are very sort of 
we try to make changes for the environment and stuff like that as well. But at the same time, I think it's totally fair to discuss the fact that the thing that is hurting these dairy farmers in this book and in real life is not environmental issues so much as the fact that big corporations are able to say, we will only pay you, you know, a few pence for your milk. So, I mean, that that is about like a monopoly on that and that's about big corporations. But we both totally recognise that there are better environmental options. Um, and if, if you are vegan, if you just choose or can't have like cow's milk, that's, that's like we're not saying that that's a bad thing at all. Um, but I think it was really interesting to get this perspective. And it was very obvious when reading it that, you know, the author has a really good understanding of all the stuff that goes on in a small town like that and how much that small town might rely on farming. And yeah, I think as I was getting to the end of this, I was like, yeah, I could totally picture this being in a small country town in Australia. And unfortunately, that also goes for the homophobic incidents that happen throughout the book. Yeah. So of course, this is the other, I guess, key storyline in this book is that as we already mentioned, the main character, Billy is a lesbian and has a few relationships with women throughout the novel, both in London and local. Um, But (laughs) there are also several incidents where not just um, homophobic comments or actions, but even sexist, like she's there to help out and work on her dad's farm. And there are a few incidents where, like I think it was at like a town hall meeting or when someone had to come to the property to do something and they're like, where's your husband? Where's where's your dad? Or even just like, I'm looking for the farmer. It's like, you're looking at her, I'm it, I'm doing this. And I thought a lot of them were handled so well and it was so fun. And the uh, Billy actually does fire um, someone who worked for her father Um, because of his um, homophobic actions towards her. She just, you know, it's not a good work environment. She doesn't want that person working for her. He does apologise to her later and it says that he is really sorry and is trying to learn. And Because he had the teenage daughter who basically was like, Dad, you're being the biggest dickhead ever. Yeah, she was great. She was like, I'm sorry, my dad is a dick. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was quite funny. So so that that was really good and I think the cast of characters were great, like the grandmother. And and that's the other thing too, like it's not – it is a funny book but there Mm. were parts where like, oh, the stuff that she goes through with her dad I think would be very emotional for a lot of people and I found particularly at the start like when he's in hospital and stuff like that and they're going through all that, it was really emotional um, and while it is mostly happy, there are lots of bits in there that just, oh, yeah, they're a bit, yeah. they're a little bit hot, like, oh, yeah. So that was, that was a bit, that was a bit sad. Um, but overall, it's quite a nice, happy, you know, lesbian rom com. Yeah. I know. It's really fun. <laughs> and I also really liked her friends. Um, she, her group of friends from London come to visit 
um, a couple of times and she goes back to London at the end of the book um, for a friend's wedding, which is very fun. They bring pride to her because she can't come down to London for pride and they like dress up the tractor and they like do yeah. like dances and yeah it's very it's very fun um and they all help her do her march through Sheffield with 300 cows yeah they're very supportive of her dairy farmer life which is very fun yeah yeah it's excellent it's really really good so I think all in all like a really sort of nuanced storyline with lots of different stuff going on but yeah yeah, quite fun yeah, like now that I think about it, um, once we started talking about it, I was like, yeah, actually lots of stuff happened. Like I yeah. devoured this in like. It's quite action-packed days. really. Yeah. yeah, but there's so much going on. Um, but there was just like one little thing that we both noticed. Yeah, just some yeah. one thing that we wanted to flag was that, and we have already discussed how, you know, we think, really real um, experiences there are of the main character, Billy, like standing up for herself with some sexist and homophobic events. Yeah, I don't want to say comments because it's way more than comments. Yeah, there's lots of actions and, yeah. Yeah, so there are some really great moments there um, throughout the book. But the one thing that we caught our attention Um, And we wanted to quickly flag just for anyone who may read this book after we're recommending it. There are two instances where the word transvestite is used. And we know that this is generally accepted to be an outdated term for anyone under the trans umbrella. And so we just wanted to flag that to make sure that if anyone read this book wasn't caught off guard by that. Yeah, I think we just both were a bit like, oh, interesting word choice. Um, And we just wanted to sort of flag that that was used. But other than that, it's a really enjoyable book. Um, Very interesting. And like we've said a couple of times, um, even though it's obviously set in a small village in Yorkshire, it would definitely translate quite well um, to Australia, unfortunately, with the small town homophobia as well. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So we do still recommend this book. We both enjoyed reading it. Um, It's still a great story. Um, Unfortunately, just that two one-word instances that we just wanted to quickly flag for you. So I guess that wraps up our book club chat about Cow Girl. It is so weird to say cow girl as opposed to like cow girl as like one word. I know. <laughs> but she's not a cow girl. She's a cow girl. She is the cow girl. Yeah. Um, so thank you for reading that with me, Caitlin. Yeah, it was fun. After my random, very random suggestion. But also we thought, you know, there are so many books that we read and we talk about on here that everyone's reading and talking about. And we did think it would be nice in these book club segments to sometimes do some lesser known books as well. So now that book club's over, um, this book that we're chatting about in our interview would actually also be a really good book club read if anyone wants to buddy read it in the future. But yeah, I guess let's get into this interview. 
Today's guest was born in Melbourne, brought up in Sydney, and has worked in the UK and Australia as a professor as well as a novelist. She holds a PhD in economics from the London School of Economics and has written five novels, including her brand new book, The Philosopher's Daughters, which was published in April 2020. Welcome to Better Words, Alison Booth. Well, thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me on board. Well, our first question, just to start us off, um, can you please give us a quick rundown of what The Philosopher's Daughters is all about? Uh, yes, I certainly can. It's about, uh, I, I started off with the idea, um, what would happen if two young women, rather well-educated young women, who lived in London in the 1890s, who'd been brought up a widowed father who was a moral philosopher. And so what would happen to these rather middle-class young women when they get the opportunity to go separately to Australia? And then in due course, they get the opportunity to go to a really remote part of Australia, the Northern Territory of South Australia, as it was called then. And how would they react to the uh, violence and the dispossession um, as well as how would they react to the beautiful scenery up there and and how would that affect their self-discovery? Because it's set in the 1890s and at that time the top of uh, the Northern Territory of South Australia and the top of Western Australia was um, still in the midst of the what we might call the frontier wars when the Indigenous population was being dispossessed of their land and so I wanted to have these two young women who were very different in spite of their common upbringing, wanted to have their reactions. And I also wanted to have how they interacted with one another because they're, they're different in personality and the conversations that they would have with one another were a way of presenting it with a more nuanced view than if I'd done it all from only one viewpoint so it's, it's written from both of the sisters' viewpoints. Yeah, and I do think it, it's so interesting that you can have people who grow up in the same house, in the same conditions, with the same upbringing um, or, you know, slightly different upbringing because everyone interprets things differently from their parents as well um, and yet grow up and have quite different political outlooks or social outlooks that always fascinates me so I think especially in a historical setting that's a really interesting place to to start discussing and to start exploring so yeah that that is a brilliant place to start yes I I agree with you about um siblings that they can be so very very different and it's not just birth order it's you know genetics as well of course and um, they react to one another. I mean, I'm one of two siblings, and we're sisters, and we see the world very differently, <laughs> just like these two characters in the book do. I've also got two daughters, and they've asked me, are we the daughters in the book? And, of course, they're not because it's entirely fictional. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly they, they see some part of themselves in there as well. That's absolutely right. Yes, yes. I think I think that's what the reading experience is about. Really, we we get into the mind of one of the characters that we're reading and reading about, and we experience that ourselves. There might be something to that because even when I was reading the book, I kept thinking that 
you know, these two sisters, even though I also have a younger brother, my sister and I are only about 20 months apart or something like that. And I could see like similarities. Really? Yes. Oh, you're the older one. I am the oldest. Yes. It's what I think the the firstborn um, in this book. And I think very often in families has um, a different burden. Um, I mean, in, in the family, in the book, the firstborn, Harriet, the older of the two sisters, she is very close to her father, both in terms of her attitudes and her talents. And the younger one um, is different. She's musical. She's less logical. Um, and so the firstborn really has that burden of expectation that firstborns can have or that any child can have. If they take feel care like- of the family. Exactly, yes. So obviously, um, you know, it's a historical novel and we are always fascinated, no matter when it's set, we're fascinated to learn what research goes into a historical novel like this. So can you tell us a little bit about your research process for this book? Yes, um, it was. It started off as being extensive reading. I did following my father's novel, which was published in 2002 or three which was set in the Northern Territory. Um, It was set in the period after the bombing of Darwin. So I became very, very interested in that and I wanted to read some background material on that. And so I did read quite extensively, beginning with Ernestine Hill's book called The Territory, um, which is a lovely book. I don't know if you've read it yet. um, She was a traveller. I think she might have been a Queenslander and she travelled into the outback and very independently, and she wrote this beautiful book about it. So that's where I began. And then I discovered that in the basement of the library at the Australian National University, I discovered this wonderful collection of books in something called the Northern Australia Research Unit. And there were um, travel books and government reports and the like, history too, of course. And so I read those fairly eclectically, learned a lot about the times and about the way that women and Indigenous inhabitants were overlooked and treated and so on. So that was all very fascinating. I was very lucky because that collection was destroyed two years ago when there was a flood in the basement of the library. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, oh, my God. Flood, you know, the it just whizzed through the library, destroyed the, the basement. They when they got books out, it's they go moldy so quickly. Yeah. Mm. And so I think I was lucky to get in and read those before they went. Absolutely. Oh yeah. my goodness, what a shame. Yeah. How how many other things were destroyed Affected, in that? Yeah. It was um, the material in the basement. It seems a bit strange after the event that you would put a lot of archives and so on in the basement of a library very close to Sullivan's Creek, which is the one that flooded. I mean, of course, mm. floods, floods in Canberra are quite rare, um, but yeah, that was, you know, that was an unfortunate event. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, gosh, that must have been heartbreaking for um, all the library team as well. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. yeah. So um, then once you actually started writing the novel, when, when did you start, you know, actually sitting down and drafting this story? 
I started drafting out notes, must have been, well, notes I began while I was reading. And then I wrote a short story, actually, after my first trip to the Northern Territory. And then when I actually started writing the book, it must have been in 2004 or five. And then I did, I've done so many drafts of this book and also changed its emphasis because I began by having quite a lot of stories set in the UK, um, set in London and Suffolk, um, which is where I've got some ancestors from Suffolk. And then I realised and people advised me that that didn't add anything to the story. I mean, you would know that you don't want to have anything in the book that doesn't advance the plot, really. So I cut out and threw away thousands and thousands of words. It's very painful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, killing your darlings, are. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> so that's fascinating. And actually, I feel like it's been a theme running through the conversations that we've had this season where a lot of the authors we've spoken to for season five of the podcast have been releasing a novel that either has been something that has been incredibly hard to finish and get out or one that they started, shelved and have come back to. So, Yeah, and the stories seem to evolve so much. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd love to know, like, obviously, since in between you've worked on other things, like, at what point did you think, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stop this for now, work on something else? And at what point did you come back and think, no, this is actually worth working on and publishing? Well, I did three novels after shelving this one. Um, they were ones I did for Penguin Random House and they were, what well, was Random House then? And I had, I had deadlines for those. They were a year apart, which is quite tough when you're working on something else at the same time. Yeah. Definitely. So was it just a matter of realizing maybe that, not that something was wrong with this novel, but that it, it wasn't something you could work out within that deadline? I think the biggest problem with this book has been the sensitivity of the issues. I mean, even now, I think it's very sensitive, although I've been very pleased with the reception, but there was one occasion when someone who was very generously allowing me to do a blog for her website, she thought the material in it was rather too sensitive. And that's even now, you know, in 2020. So I did think all the way through, am I going to get into trouble with this book? And I've noticed that over this period that I've been thinking about it, that the attitudes to writing about the frontier in this way have been evolving very much. And that I was sort of quite worried about that. But I, the way I wrote it, I wanted to write it from perspective of these two white women that we've been talking about and who were both very sensitive about inequalities, both between men and women and between black and white. And so... I thought, well, if I'm doing it from the perspective, I mean, I'm of European descent, obviously, and the two characters are as well. So I thought if I kept within their viewpoint, that's one way forward. Um, and that's that was my biggest fear, actually, that it might not work out well in terms of people reading it. I mean, I did have it. I did run it past a few people who were able to check that I was 
not making any big blunders with regard to the um, to the material. Yeah. Yes. Right. Though everything has been changing so much um, with you know what we know and what we accept and what we no longer accept, and they're the two uh, sisters in the novel, Sarah and Harriet. There is a scene where Sarah's husband, Henry, talks about how he witnessed another station manager tie up a young Indigenous girl and his plans to leave her for days until she's tamed. And he says, I, I could have said more and I should have said more. How important was it for you to not, like, gloss over some of these things that really would have been happening back then in the 1890s? really, really important, um, especially as I had read in some of these accounts that I'd read. I'd read of that incident that was in the book at that point was actually based on something that happened um, and some of the other issues were as well, and that sort of made me angry as and want to, want to include that in the, the story, but I wanted to include it in a story that would not be too violent and in your face because I think it's difficult for readers to cope with this sort of material and so to have it reported in a conversation where someone's eavesdropping with you know her husband talking to the guy who delivers the post gives a little bit of distance for the readers so that they can absorb that information and and know it without feeling you know they're going to be sick and shut the book in. And I think too at that time it it's probably, first of all, it probably wouldn't have been something that he necessarily would have said to his wife because of how women were viewed. And I guess the casual nature of it and the fact that you're just overhearing this conversation and the way that things are talked about as, you know, just the way they are, like a bit shocking, but, oh, that's, it's sort of, it's the way things go or whatever. I think that is a more accurate representation of the insidious nature of the way, especially in Australia, we have developed this society where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not treated the same in the country where white people dispossess them of. So I think that is actually, it's almost like it's more shocking in a way because it's not in your face. And I think that makes you stop and think just how ingrained it is in our society that quite it maybe would have been, like you say, a bit too shocking, but for narrative purposes as well, a bit too unbelievable that, you know, potentially, you know, Sarah or Harriet would witness that directly, um, especially being women, yeah. like I said, in that they probably wouldn't be in a situation where, that was done in front of them or that they witnessed that. So I think that is a good way around that and a good way to present it as well. That's a very good point. Did you worry as a white writer, did you worry about portraying it in, I guess, the best way? Because we know that history is always, it's always biased in some way. There's no such thing as like a, a truly impartial report of history. And so, you know, as we know growing up as white in Australia, so much of what we're presented is um, taught to us in 
a particular way. And as Caitlin said, like we are, we are in 2020 and it's sad that it's only in 2020 really recognizing how incorrect and how wrong most of what we are taught at school or we were taught in school in the 2000s is. So how did you go about dealing with that and I guess educating yourself and making sure that you were presenting it in a way that was as accurate as possible? Yes, um, I I did that by reading widely and not only of the material I've told you about but also of, you know, other more modern literature. And also I think that the I couldn't have written this book from the viewpoint of two brothers, for example, because I think that women are, and of that time, who were also written out of history, white women as well as black women, that it's, I felt it was better to present the world of, of the time from their perspective, given their upbringing when they were brought up by a rather sensitive father who was aware of inequality, that they would be able to see some of what was going on in a reasonably detached sort of way. And, of course, they missed, They would have missed a whole lot of the sort of subtleties because the power relations was such that on that cattle station it was, I was going to say master-servant, it wasn't quite that, but the it wasn't that actually, but the relationship of Sarah with Bella, for example, yes, which developed into friendship, but that began as, um, you know, Bella was a domestic servant, so that that was what would have happened at the time. And and I tried with the character, the Aboriginal stockman, Mick, I tried to make him, give him much more agency. I mean, he had to have more agency because he was actually a, a fairly big part. He became a fairly big part of Harriet's life. And to do that without getting caught up in material that would have been very difficult for me to write about, I wrote him as somebody who'd been through a mission education in um, the bottom of South Australia and then he'd worked his way north um, and ended up at this cattle station where he was a wonderful person and very much in control of what he was doing. And actually that brings me to just a slight digression into the issue of the foundation of the, the establishment of the cattle industry in the Northern Territory. And I was fortunate that I had a very, I have a very good friend who did her PhD thesis on Aborigines in the cattle industry. And she did that, on, it was a much later period, I think it was the, before the Wave Hill strikes in the middle of the, um, the 20th century. And so she was able to give me some advice and some reading and I read her book about Aborigines getting agency in the cattle industry because, of course, they're fantastic writers. So interesting. And Mick really is an interesting character. And I did think that that moment where after he's first met Harriet and didn't realise that she was Sarah's sister, and so he spoke to her in pidgin English, and then she finds out later that that was what he did because he thought that that was what she would expect of him. And I thought that that was written really well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I like to think of Mick as 
having a sense of humour, a good sense of humour. Yeah, I think so. Um, But I guess it is really hard in historical fiction, isn't it? Because as modern women now, like you said, certain things you have learnt about the way that Aboriginal people were treated make you really angry. So the temptation is to write something that really obviously points out the injustice and has someone being completely, you know, taking charge and, and, you know, maybe Harriet changes everything. But yeah, that also isn't accurate of the time. And I think the way that you've done it is recognising those inequalities and, you know, small, subtle shifts. As you say, the outsider perspective as well. Um, is really, really interesting. But it is hard because, yeah, our temptation now is to sort of, for lack of a better word, rewrite things. But you do have to stay true to how much people would be willing to change at the time as well within the world. Because even though Harriet and Sarah are quite, I guess, liberal young women and do have some more, you know, as you say, like middle class, more um, progressive progressive views, there are still going to be things that if you took them out of that setting and put them in a modern world, they would not agree. Like it is quite hard to, to show a different side and to encourage change and to encourage recognition without making it completely historically inaccurate. Yes. Yeah, that's right. A historian mentioned the other night that it's really a conversation of the past with the present and you have to make it credible. Yeah. Um, you were suggesting. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, so let's talk, though, about different time frames because your other historical fiction novels, while they're still historical fiction, are set in the 20th century. So 1950s to 1970s, and then your previous novel before this was contemporary as well. So do you find much difference between writing historical fiction and then writing a contemporary setting and then even writing within different timeframes within historical fiction? Is there much variation for you? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. And for me, it's a thinking of a, an issue, a period that excites me. And then thinking of characters that I am interested in. And then away I go. But the, the first three novels, the Abrisic trilogy, and once I'd done the first, I was sort of set into that, that mould. Um, and I never imagined there would be three, but it just happened that way with the publisher. And I wanted to write the first one because I was interested in migration. I mean, who isn't living in Australia or living in Britain too because there's been recently so much migration into Britain. And so that when you start thinking about migration, you realise that you could pick any period in a country like Australia. And then it's a matter of, you know, my heart drives me to a particular period, to put it somewhat romantically. So it's the time period that gets you first and then the novel and the characters develop from there? I guess so, and also the issues of the time period. So the the issues that have got me very exercised and excited in um, my writing career, apart from 
the last one, which was contemporary, were to do with not only with migration but also with Indigenous issues. I will never forget the moment when where we were living in Britain, we were living in Wivenhoe, which um, is a fishing village which is outside the University of Essex where we were both working at the time. And I'll never forget the moment one night when I was standing at the top of the stairs and I heard on the radio, on BBC Radio 4, I think, the Bringing Them Home report about stolen generations, stolen children. And I hadn't known any of that until I heard that. And I was really, really shocked. And like everyone who hadn't known of it. And so that appears all through the trilogy um, because there's one of the characters who is a stolen child. And so that's an example of how an issue married to a time, love of a time period or interest in a time period gets me good. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you find then there's much difference between the research and I guess the crafting of a story that's set, you know, 70 years ago versus 130 years ago? Yes, there, there was really because, I mean, 130 years ago is quite a big difference and that was another thing that concerned me when I was writing that novel and, you know, perhaps made me be a bit slower than I might have been otherwise was was wondering if I was getting the language right and, you know, is, was it the right language for the period? Did Victorian young women speak like that? And, and if they didn't, would I want to have them speaking genuinely like Victorian young women? And Probably not. Um, so those, I think, it becomes for me, it became more difficult the further back in time. Whereas if you take something like the well, because of my um, age, it's easier for me to go back twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years. You know, memories and so on. Parents, grandparents. It, it's easier to do that. Yeah, it's a little bit closer to home. Yes, a bit closer to home, and I think it's quite interesting that in that historical fiction I read recently, it, it's viewed as being historical fiction if it's more than 50 years ago, whereas the historians that I know view history as being, you know, what happened 20, 30 years ago. Um, so I think that's an interesting difference. And, I mean, this year, anything past 2020 feels like it's history. <laughs> So it it is interesting about historical fiction too as what is considered historical because I think for some readers it might be a tendency to think of anything that's not set in their lifetime feels like it's historical. So like for 90s babies like us, anything set in the 80s, that's historical. Um, (laughs) It is an interesting definition to work around as well I guess I guess it's like we often talk about young adult literature on this podcast and you know the idea that well what does that entail because what's the age range there yeah because 13 to 18 is a massive difference in what people want to read what people are doing and things like that and I guess it's the same you lump historical fiction all in together but something that's as you say it's set in the 1950s that's historical fiction, but so is something set in the 1550s. So, yeah. yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge genre that we all just sort of lump together. 
Um, so it's, it is a very interesting, interesting discussion. Well, I'm, I'm completing at the moment something set in 1989 predominantly. And to me, that feels like history. I mean, it's a time when the Berlin Wall fell, but probably for a lot of other people, it doesn't feel like history. You too. Would that feel like history? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. But I think that that is an interesting point, isn't it? That how far back, you know, a person can look is probably like it's a very personal thing that, you know, to someone, something set in the late 80s doesn't seem like that long ago. But it is. That's like over 30 yeah. years now. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think of what life was like then in Europe with the um, East and West, Europe just so different, so much. I mean, even, um, you know, technology obviously has changed so dramatically since then, but even, you know, since we were children in the 90s, there's been such a huge difference in the way that technology works in our lives in 10 years, reading about the 2000s will feel like a completely different world because there's no smartphones and, you know, it it will be completely different. And I do think, I mean, again, history is literally being written as we speak. So it's always going to be a genre that's changing and evolving. And that that does fascinate me. And I do think social history is probably, I mean, I don't, I don't really care for, you know, battles and wars and all this sort of stuff I don't really find that as interesting but the social history of how you know computers have changed our lives or you know just silly things like that is is fascinating and I mean I think Caitlin have we had this discussion on the podcast or it might have been in one of our Instagram lives we were talking about back in time for dinner and the social history of food and dinner and stuff like that. Like that is my favourite sort of stuff. I was I actually that. thinking about that while reading The Philosopher's Daughters. I don't know if you've seen Back in Time for Dinner, Alison, but, oh, it's brilliant. But, like, this year um, Annabelle Crabb did a new season um, and it goes because the, they did it a couple of years ago and they did the 1950s all the way through to the 2000s and then into the future. Um, and this year they just aired a new season and they started in the 1890s in Australia. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sort of stuff is, I guess a lot of people would be like, is insignificant. You know, it's not a war. It's not, but history, history is a fascinating subject. And, um, yeah, clearly we could talk all day about what constitutes history. And I know a lot of, a lot of academics as well, um, in the literature space have a lot to say, I guess, on what exactly constitutes historical fictions. And we did uh, mention in our little introduction for you that you have a PhD in economics. So how does that and academia, how has that affected your writing? Um, I guess the first thing to say is that it's made me very conscious of using my time carefully, not wasting any time. And But in terms of the writing, I found when I first decided that I wanted to write more fiction that it took a bit of retraining my brain because writing in economics, it's very sort of logical and rational and so on. And you can't afford to have emotion. You don't you don't want any emotion. Or you're- yes, I might say probably dry when I hear economics. I'm sorry, Alison. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's not dry. It's, it's exciting and fascinating, but it's not emotional. 
And one thing about economics, you do need a narrative, though. You need, an, you know, in amongst the logic and the maths and so on, you need to have a narrative. And so that's one link. And it took me quite some practice retraining to try to, you know, be able to introduce some emotion into my writing. And also to, you know, when you're writing fiction, you, you have to occasionally just completely let yourself go. And for an economist to completely let themselves go in writing is quite a challenge. Yeah, I imagine, though, that your skills as an academic and your research skills must have been very, very helpful then when researching your novels as well in terms of just sifting through what is a credible source, what's not a credible source, all that sort of, you know, stuff and and evaluating your information. That must have um, come in handy. Yes, yes. Yeah, that, that those analytical skills are, are very useful. And I'm married to an economic historian, actually. And so you can imagine that we might do a bit of talking about history, which we do. Yeah, excellent. Oh, did he help you out with research for this novel? No, he didn't. He's actually British. And his main area has been between the wars in, in Britain and Europe and also asylum seekers and migration and so on but it's, it's really his interest that helps you know be able to well this so in any relationship you can talk over things that interest you and often too I find as a writer or even even when I'm trying to work on my university assignments and my partner knows literally nothing about what I'm talking about the very act of trying to explain it to someone else if you're working on say a plot hole or you know you're trying to work through something in your mind the act of having that conversation is helpful but I imagine yes if if your husband is you know actually skilled in that as well then you probably get a very helpful answer in response unlike my boyfriend who's like that's nice that's nice Yes, but I, I agree with you completely that the act of verbalising it, you know, when you're talking to someone, that yeah. really helps. Um, yeah. You need you need someone who understands the the nitty-gritty of, of writing and, and everything that goes into the thinking of the writing. <laughs> well, this, this is where um, looking up on Google is so wonderful. You, you know, you can yeah. type in what music was around in, 19, in, 18, in 1989, for example, and you know, up comes something that you can then listen to and put it in the text. Yeah, if you want I feel to. like you definitely need to have yeah. like a Spotify playlist or something for that novel because there's some great music from the 80s. <laughs> oh dear, I'm yeah. the old technology of. <laughs> maybe, maybe for the 80s, maybe we could <laughs> maybe you could make a mixtape instead. That's an idea. Yes, I think. Yeah, <laughs> about this, they've both got Spotify. <laughs> but I think how amazing if you had like proof copies of your book with a with a, with an actual mixtape cassette. But then people would be like, I don't have a cassette player anymore. I can't play this. <laughs> I love that though. So thank you so much for joining us today, Alison. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and I know you said there that you're not really up with all the technology sometimes, but where can people find you online or um, find out more information about your books? Um, they can find me online at my fiction website and I'm also on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram as well. Wonderful. <laughs> and um 
what's your handle for those things? Is it um, just your name? No, the, the Twitter handle is booth underscore Allison and the mm. Facebook I've, I've I've forgotten. Maybe it's just Allison Booth or something like that. Yeah, just um, mostly under your name, Emma. I'm sure if people search that, they will find you. Thank you so much, Alison, for, for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been lovely and I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. So have we. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.